Welcome to the Rise and Challenge podcast. I'm your host, Alex Burkett. Joining me this week, he's an actor, director, writer, producer, famously known for being the host of the hit Nickelodeon game show, Legends of the Hidden Temple, and a real estate investor. It's Kirk Fogg. Kirk comes onto the show to talk about his Rise of the Challenge and talks about his journey through hosting Legends of the Hidden Temple, his personal journey through college, and how he uses skills that he learned through his days in the film and TV industry to what he does today. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you follow and subscribe on all your major favorite podcast platforms. And you can also watch this full-length interview I have with Kirk Fogg on YouTube at the Rise of the Challenge podcast YouTube channel. This week's quickfire challenge is the will to win, the desire to succeed, the urge to reach your full potential, these are the keys that will unlock the door to personal excellence. Think about this quote this coming up week on how you are going to use it to rise to your challenge. So sit back and relax and enjoy the rise to the challenge of Kirk Fogg. Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Joining me today, he's an actor, producer, writer, editor, real estate developer, and a TV show host best known for the iconic game show, Legends of the Hidden Temple. It's Kirk Fogg. How are you doing today, Kirk? Good. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for giving this opportunity to talk about your Rise of the Challenge and learning more about your experience. So we'd like to go right to the beginning and talk about where are you from and what were you involved in growing up? Um, you know, I was your typical kind of, uh, you know, we had two parents working, so I was kind of a latchkey kid, except I was the third in the, in the chain. So I was kind of taken care of by my sister and my brother, but I grew up in the TV generation and, uh, um, I was just a, <laughs> I was kind of a crazy kid. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, I couldn't hold still, um, I, I went to school. I loved school, but I didn't really like sitting in my seat. So I, I always laugh about it because I, I think I have like 17, um, 17 report cards and the teachers always write a note on the back and it says, and it always says first semester, Kirk has trouble sitting in a seat. That'd be like the, everybody else gets like beautiful prose. I get Kirk's had trouble sitting in a seat. Second semester would be Kirk seems to be sitting in a seat more. And, that, and then I go year two, you know. So I was kind of a hyper kid, I think probably because I ate too much sugar cereal. And I liked all, I liked all of them. And uh, I used to love, love going to the grocery store with my mom and she would, uh, I, would, I would be in charge of cereal. So I would spend like an hour in the cereal um, aisle looking for the perfect cereals for our family. And it was sort of a cross between what was the best flavor and what offered the best prize. Because back then they really gave out prizes. So I was really analyzing each of the boxes and I'd come home with six or seven boxes of so cereal. What was that cereal that had the best prize and the best flavor? Uh, probably Sugar Smacks. What they, they're called Golden Smacks or something like that, Golden Crisp. I forget that, but they were called Sugar Smacks. And um, they were great. The best prize ever was on the back they had a, an album, like a, a record, and you had to cut it out, and you could play it on your uh, record player. And it was uh, it was sugar, 
Sugar, but 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 oh, honey, honey, and I love that. Just imagine what like all the technology they have today, how they could take that concept back then and what they could do with it now. And they don't do anything with it now. They don't. They, you don't find that in the sh they. You know, I guess they just got a conscience in the cereal department. So, well, you go now into the cereal aisle, and there's just it's just a whole aisle, and you're like, what do I pick? And usually the ones when I was younger, Frosted Flakes was my favorite. Well, yeah, Frosted Flakes standard, gold uh, honeycombs standard, yep. Captain Crunch standard, you know, all of those. Cocoa <laughs> Crisps. Oh, now you're making me hungry now. <laughs> when you were growing up, did you have anyone that you ins were inspired by or that you looked up to? Mm. Yeah, so I, again, I'm a, not again, because I haven't talked about this, but I'm a, I'm a little, I've always played a little older or younger than I am. So I have a lot of uh, heroes that are quite seemingly out of my age range. Possibly, maybe not now, maybe go, no, that's right on. Um, I loved uh, comedians. I loved Jerry Lewis. I love Jerry Lewis. So I'd watch anything with a Jerry Lewis movie. I like Jack Lemmon. He was one of my favorites. Um, and I loved a lot of sporting athletes. You know, I liked, I liked the Chicago Cubs. I grew up as a oh. young kid. <laughs> and I was from LA. And my brother got me into the Chicago Cubs. He read me, a, he told me the other day, and I couldn't, I'd forgotten it. He said, yeah, we were at that grocery store. And um, while you weren't in the cereal department, you were over in the magazine area. And I read you an article about this guy named Billy Williams, who was a great Hall of Famer for the Chicago Cubs. And so I started following him, and then I started following the Cubs. The first year I followed them was in 1969. I thought, this is the greatest team ever! And that was the greatest choke by the Chicago Cubs until they won the World Series back in, what, 2016? Was it 16, 17? I mean, I'm a Cardinals fan, so I, I don't pay attention to the Cubs at all. I will say that the Cardinals-Cubs rivalry is a great rivalry. If you go to the games, never. Well, I did work. I wore a cardinal hat because my kid was on the Cardinals in Little League, so it was really hard. Oh, wow! <laughs> when you were growing up, did you have any passions? Um, because you talked about you you weren't like into school, but yeah, I liked art. I really liked. I liked art. I really liked, I could get lost in doing artwork. I really liked that a lot. I just didn't, I was so, I don't know, I was just so hyper and I was so, um, I was always on, I think. I was always on and I was always like trained to be funny and I was always like getting in trouble in class for that mostly. But um, uh, so I was, you know, I was, that my passion was that. And then finally, I really wanted to be in TV when I was a little kid. I mean, I just loved TV. I was watching, I was a TV addict. So I, watched all the shows, I knew all the commercials, I knew all the jingles. And um, so I really, that was my passion. But then my brother thought that it wasn't a very practical idea to be an actor when he was like, you know, 10, telling me, you know, when I was seven. And he goes, uh, so I really got into sports. And so I really, that's where I really found my passion because I really became pretty good at sports and football and, and stuff like that. And I sort of broke through and, and, um, and I was always a, um, well, I was always really good in, in football and baseball. And then when I got into high school, I was very undersized and I played defensive line. And it was really one of the biggest challenges. And I tell my kids this now, but I go, it was really one of my first big challenges that I had was 
Um, I was 150 pounds. I was five foot eight, and I wanted to play defensive lineman because that's why I played all through uh, my junior All-American program, my Pop Warner program. But they had weight limits, so I was always at the top of my weight. But when I got in high school, suddenly I was going against guys who were over 200 pounds, and uh, I had no shot. So it's funny, my sophomore year, I went from nose for defensive lineman. I said, uh, how about wide receiver? Because <laughs> <laughs> I was fast. And I tried wide receiver, but, but the problem was the guy who was our wide receiver, he was a sophomore and he was already a starting varsity and parade All-American in, oh. in nationwide as a wide receiver. And I'm like, I'm never going to break the wide receiver position. So I decided to go back to uh, defensive lineman, my last game of the year, and I had two sacks. And I was like, wow, I can do this against big guys. And the next year I told the coaches I want to be a nose guard and they put me at number, they had a depth chart up in the, up in the uh, locker room, little tabs. And I was number five out of five people who wanted to be David's lineman. And I worked my way up that, that uh, depth chart until the second, the day before our first varsity football game, I never gave up. My dad was right there with, you know, trying to get me to, to break through and, Finally, the night be, or two nights before our first varsity football game, the coach yelled at me and had me come, didn't yell at me, but he yelled across the field for me to come over and he said, get in, the, get in the game or get in the scrimmage. He goes, you're starting Friday night. Wow. So it's like the biggest, it was, that was such a huge event for me because, you know, it was like really coming from nothing, you know, like being in the bottom and really thinking there was no hope, but really just never giving up. I think a lot of people can relate to that story where size definitely plays a part in sports. Like some people, if they're not tall enough to play in basketball at a, a center or I don't know, basketball positions and stuff, yeah. point guard, that they kind of go back and think, okay, now I can't do this. And they kind of lose that self-confidence in a way where I've experienced that, where people look at me and they don't think I'm an athlete, but I kind of call myself a wild card where you never know what's going to happen until I'm out on the field playing. And then they kind of are like, wow. And it's kind of like when people get picked for dodgeball in school, they're like, you're the last one. But then that last person is always the best person playing. Yeah. And then it kind of makes you second guess, but it kind of goes with your story is you never gave up. You had that mindset where you wanted to be on that starting lineup for that position and you were going to do anything you could to get to that spot. Right. Did you know it was a lot of heartache, you know, it was a lot of heartache. It was a lot of, you know, dad to son conversations sitting in the car after practice and feeling like it was never going to happen. And, you know, him telling me, don't, don't give up and feeling like, I don't know, they just don't think they're looking at me. And I was just like, really, I mean, these are, these are huge lessons and I think it came back to really help me later on in another hugely difficult field, which was the entertainment business. Are you a person that uses like motivations as a key for your success? Like you use those to keep your mind going forward to reach those goals? Motivations in what way? What do you mean? So like your dad, you had those conversations with your dad and how he was keep telling you, he was motivating you to not give up and stuff. And you use yeah. that to get the results that you wanted. But have you used that same situation throughout your career? I have, and, you know, and, and I think what's probably been helpful is that, you know, all of us are, you know, we, 
most people, we hate to reach out for help. You know, we're going, oh, I'm going to do it myself. You know, and I kind of grew up in kind of a Midwesty, even though I lived in Southern California, it was kind of like living in the Midwest. So I was kind of like the farmer attitude, you know, it's like pick up your big truck and get out on the farm and start, you know, working hard. And, you know, you're only going to do it if you work hard. People aren't going to notice you until work hard. But so it was really hard to reach out. And, and later on, and I have had the ability to, <laughs> I guess, usually when I bottom out and realize I'm, completely uh, lost and, and uh, I'm, I feel like a failure, I usually will reach out and go, I need help. I, I just need help. And uh, it happened again in college. Um, I was, uh, I, I decided at the last, um, I decided in my fourth year of college, I was almost ready to graduate and I decided I hated my major, yeah. but I was so deep into my major and I had taken a couple of acting classes for non-major. I was a PR major, but I took a couple of uh, acting classes and I really liked it. And I went around the United States with the, some fraternity brothers. And on that trip, I decided I was going to be, um, I wanted to be an actor. And I said, but God, I don't, I can't start over in my major. I've been in college long enough, but I said, but you know what? I think I'll go one more year and I'll just dive into the theater department. And I did. And what had happened was, I had got cast in a couple of these one-act plays, kind of randomly, like an audition for one thing and I got cast in two, and I didn't know how to act. And suddenly I was doing this play, I was doing two, I was rehearsing two one-acts at the same time, and I was completely lost. And one of them was this weird kind of comedy, and this other one was a play called Actors, which was about a guy trying to break through he was given a big break and he was struggling. He was going to be fired. And so I was, I was, I was rehearsing that. And then the other one was this wacky comedy kind of thing. And I did the technical rehearsal for the wacky comedy one night. It was just a technical rehearsal and no one laughed. Oh, no. and I go, oh my God, this is not funny. And I, and my friend who was my roommate, he was doing the working in the lights and stuff. And I said, I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. After the, after the uh, rehearsal, I went outside and we talked in this car. And I said, this is terrible. This is a disaster. This is not funny. He goes, no, no, no. It's a technical rehearsal. It, nobody laughs. It's just getting the cues. And I go, no, no, no. This is a comedy. Somebody has to have laughed somewhere in this thing and no one's laughing. And so I ha was having a freak out and he finally got me. He had, it's so weird. He had gone through a self-awareness program like weeks before. Like this big LA was very hip, like SD. I don't know if you know SD, but it's like this big, those big awareness trainings back in the 70s. Anyway, he went to this training. He had been trying to get me to go to this thing. And I said, eh, I don't really want to do that. But he ended up talking to me for three hours in my car. And he realized, and he got me to a point where he said, what is it that you're really afraid of? And I said, what I was really afraid of was the audience and what they're going to think of me. And he goes, so how's that going to work if you go out on stage thinking about the audience? I go, it's probably not going to work. He goes, so what's the only thing you can do? And he goes, I guess the only thing I can do is think about my character only, just the character, just my scenario. If, and he goes, so that's, that's my suggestion, just do that. So I got up the next day. I was going to do this. It was a 12 o'clock show in the afternoon. And I got up in the morning and I assumed the character from the moment I got up to the moment I walked on stage, I, I had to go to a couple of classes and I was at the character in the class. 
like, and I didn't care. I was so not willing to, to fail. And I was the character in the class. I was all kind of very fastidious. And I was like this, you know, because I was this taxidermist guy with glasses and all kind of very nervous, kind of Jack Lemony. And, uh, and I swear to God, I went in the place was packed. My first scene was knocking on the door. You don't see me knocking on the door. I had so much intention behind the knock that when I knocked, the crowd laughed. And I like, and then of course I was immediately out of my experience. I was like, oh shit, that's the audience. They're laughing. And then of course I got back in the scene, but I just assumed character. Every time I thought about the audience, I put my will back to the character and it was a hit. It was this hit show. And it was so weird because the other show, it was so weird. So simultaneously I'm doing this other show, which is about the actor who was getting, going to get fired. And that's how basically I felt. I felt like I was going to get fired because everybody's going to realize that it was horrible. And so I had to have a breakthrough in this other play. It was a play called Actors by Conrad Bromberg. And um, I'll never forget, it was just a very dramatic, uh, it was an off-Broadway play that was coming to Broadway. And it was emotional. I, I had to break down, I broke down and cried in the scene. I was like, I had a full experience with these two plays and that's what kind of set me off into the world of uh, acting. So if you didn't go to your friend that was the lighting person, how do you think it would have played out differently? Just like the technical rehearsal. And somebody would have probably said something nice. They'd go, oh, that was a good, that was, that was, that was, yes, good for you. <laughs> good for you. Good for you that you got up there. That's very brave. That's not the response you wanted. No, that's not the response. And I've gotten those. <laughs> kind of shows that people like don't be afraid to reach out to people like even for advice because you never know what a different point of view would be so it's kind of nice that you reached out to him and he was able to help you in a way from those classes that he right and then oh the, the he made a deal with me he said if i'm successful that i'd go through that program and so he said oh. you gotta go to the program so i did it was an amazing these self-awareness programs are like from outer space. They're really, really bizarre. There's a movie called Bob Carroll, Carol, Ted and Alice, and it's based on those trainings. They, they go and have this big training, come back very aware. Of course, nobody really wants to hear what they have to say, but. <laughs> so you talked about you were a PR major. Why did you pick PR at the time? Um, <laughs> because I reached out, well, I didn't reach out. I was, sat down, I was going to Orange, I was going to a place called Orange Coast Colleges in, in Newport Beach, near Newport Beach in California. And it was a two-year college. And I was a film and TV major. Loved it. Loved it. I, I got my general ed and all that stuff, but I was in the TV department all the time. We were doing shows. I was on the radio station. I mean, talking about, I was like, I was doing well in school. It's like my passion, right? I was really following my passion. And then I ran into a DJ who was a speaker at our, our class and was guest speaking or guest lecturing for a little bit. And he sat people down and had interviews with them because they were, we were coming up at the end of our, our two years. And he totally talked me out of being a film and TV major okay. in college because he was miserable as a DJ in Orange County, I guess. I don't know. He just thought there was no future in it. And he just goes, don't. You got to get something you can fall back on. So don't be a film and TV major. You can always do that. Just do something else. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he probably knows. Yeah, he probably knows. And it was not the right thing. You got to follow. I tell people this all the time. Follow your bliss in college. 
I mean, look, back then college was not uh, expensive, but now, you know, you, you can spend what a hundred grand and you could be, you know, an art major, you know, and what are you going to do with the art major? Or I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm just saying that you're spending a hundred grand as for an art major or something like, or reading film and TV major or whatever, you know, that's a lot of money to invest in something that may not pay anything. But again, I still go back to if, if you don't do something that you want to be there, that's going to make you want to go to school, you're going to drop out. You'll yeah. drop. So you're correct with the whole, we spend so much money nowadays on a piece of paper, but I'm not in the job that I'm in in sports, which I went for. I was one of those people during college where I tried so many different things and yeah. I was part of a fraternity and I learned philanthropy work. And so charity work, I did that for three years coming up with events and stuff. And that was a fun thing for me. So I was just like, what could I do job wise that I could use this experience and be able to still work and do what I can. My job now kind of does that. We do charity stuff, but right. it's doing events and planning all of that. So it's hard when you go to the college, you learn all that stuff. And then, well, I'm not using that right now, but it, times change now. So you never know what's going to happen. You could like, you, like for you, you went through that route as a PR, but then you were like, I want to go back to what I enjoyed and you found that passion and you're able to continue on doing acting and TV and all that stuff. Right. And I mean, the, the story is that a lot of people, unless you're like going to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, a lot of times people go in for law school and they never become a lawyer, but you know, look, a lot of times you don't end up doing what you do, but you know, college is really about, I mean, just be passionate about what you're going for in college and follow your bliss that way because then it's only going to lead to something. Maybe you, maybe you decide to change after you get out of college, but, but you have gone for it in college and you've done the best you can and you've stayed, now not stayed out of drudgery, but stayed because you wanted to. It's only going to be, you know, when you get out of college, you can do something else, but you've taken whatever tools you had that there's a lot of stick to that has to go into college. And um, I think it pays off. You talked about you joined a fraternity. Talk about that experience. <laughs> bittersweet um i came out of jc uh with a 3.5 gpa uh you know dean's list i go into fullerton i'm a junior so i have to go right into my upper division classes and i get talked into joining this fraternity and it turns out to be the big animal house okay. <laughs> yes i picked the wrong one <laughs> I mean, I love, I have some fraternity brothers that are still, I went golfing with my fraternity brothers this last week. So oh, nice. I'm still in touch with my fraternity brothers, but it was not a great move for me. The next semester I had a 1.7 got put on academic probation oh, and I struggled to get that one seven. So it was like, cause I was like, it's really tough. It was, I was 45 minutes away from school, which cause I lived in Newport beach and I was going to Fullerton and uh, and we, they were always wanting us to go up there and party. So, you know, cause you have to be with the brothers and you got to do, and you got to be with the brothers, you got to bond. And back then it was really about that kind of thing. It's changed now to more philanthropy, which I wish it would have been when I was in there, but now it was more about partying. It was, it was animal house and our house was Delta Chi, which was really like Delta house. And, um, I laughed because the guy I went golfing with was, uh, 
he was the first guy I saw coming through the doors of my fraternity. It was a big stairway that went up when you walked in the swinging doors to the stairway and then swinging doors at the top of the stairway. And all of a sudden I heard a big loud scream, a bang, and the doors fly open and there's a guy at the top and he's laughing and then he falls down the stairs to, the, to my feet and he looks up at me and he laughs and he gets up and runs away. And I go, <laughs> I go, I like this fraternity. This is, sounds like a lot. <laughs> I would probably be, if I was in your situation, I'd be like, uh, am I at the right house? <laughs> yeah, I should have gone to SAEs. The SAEs wanted me and they were much more, um, I guess, calm. But anyway, it was good. I, I liked, I, I did, once I got through that first semester, I got everything back on track. But uh, I did become social chairman of our fraternity. And, uh, and you know, and I'm, I, I enjoyed it. It was good. But I really had to get out of the party scene and move back into my uh, college scene. Yes. I know from my friends, they did the same thing. They joined and then their GPA tanked. And it's like, come on, you're here for school. Like, I understand you're wanting to have fun, but you can do both at the same time. Like, my parents would have been so mad if I, when I joined and then my grades would fall, because you're like, you're here for school. And I was the one that had to help them get their grades up and everything. But it's kind yeah. of like a bittersweet, like, was I too focused on school and not having fun? And I was the complete opposite. And But I still talked to a core group of friends from there. And it kind of shows that you can get true friendships and bonds. And you really do. You really do. You know, despite all that. And I came out and I was resentful. I really had some resentment because I thought it really, I, I thought it made me a more too much of a partier from then on. Mm -hmm. And then I became a bartender and I partied a lot and partied, you know, so it was a lot of downside to that. But eventually, um, eventually at 28 years old, I gave up all the party. So that was another huge breakthrough for me. And it's not, I don't talk about it much, but it is a magnificent breakthrough and turnaround for my life at 28. And um, I was in New York at the time. So this is a scoop. You've got the scoop here. Yeah. Um, so I was in New York at the time and uh, I was trying to, and I was trying, I had, I was living in LA. I graduated from college. I went to LA. LA didn't want me. Uh, they weren't ready for me in my acting career. I went back to Orange County and learned how to bartend at a place called TGI Fridays. I learned how to throw models <laughs> in the air and all that kind of stuff. I became the number one bartender after another big struggle and a breakthrough. They were ready to fire me, but then all of a sudden I broke through and uh, I'm kind of a fourth quarter guy. So, I broke through and I became the number, a number one bartender. And then I got this amazing opportunity to go to Paris, France, to open up the first uh, American bar in Paris. Yeah. And myself, another fraternity brother who, who got me the job at Friday's, and um, two other guys, and we flew to, uh, or one other guy, and we flew to Paris and opened up this bar on the Champs-Élysées. Amazing, amazing experience. Um, we had to teach them how to bartend. We had to teach ourselves how to learn French. You know, we had to learn French. We had to count money. We had, it was like so much incredible experience. And I did that for a year. And then after that, I was offered another job to stay there. But I thought, man, I'm 25. And I said, I really need to start my career. And so, and I didn't want to go back to LA. So I decided to fly to New York. So I flew to New York. And I got into acting classes there and studied really hard. I studied with Uta Hagen eventually, who was really one of the big iconic 
uh, acting teacher. She was in, um, for, the, for the youngsters out there, she was in um, um, she, the one with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Um, anyway, no, it wasn't Cleopatra, but it was, anyway, I'll think about it. <laughs> she, she did a big role. She initiated the role on Broadway. Anyway, she was a big acting teacher. And I was really working hard to break through as an actor and I trying to get work, trying to get an agent. And eventually I hit that wall. I came to that point in my time where I said, uh, I'm either going to continue to party or I'm going to have to stop because I can't do both. I cannot. And it was funny, my grandmother had given me this book called How to... Um, how to act in commercials for fun and profit. And I read that book and it said that once you, if you have an audition to do not drink the night before. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's, that's a good idea. Yeah. I can understand that. You know, well, suddenly I started getting caught of auditions and suddenly I was like, wait, I can't drink tonight either. I can't drink tonight either. I was like, it was backing up on me. And finally I, I reached a point in my life where I go, I've got to make a decision. So I made that decision to, uh, stop drinking and I never drink again. So I have not drank since I was 28 years old. And really after doing that, I was able to really put my focus in my career and, um, and, and become and grow up and, uh, and start getting work. It was amazing how that worked that I started to make, I made a huge choice in my life, a big change and it paid off because I started working and I really didn't stop for a long time. I think something with the, sh the show that I do is we talk about challenges and obstacles that we have to face and how, in your example, drinking was a big challenge and you kind of had that decision. Do I continue that lifestyle and not get the work that I want or do I have to look what's best for me and my career and make that sacrifice? And you saying that today you still haven't done it, it shows that you made that promise to yourself and you're continuing getting the work that you're proud to have gotten that you probably wouldn't have gotten if you were going through that lifestyle still. Well, I wouldn't have a family. I wouldn't have kids. I wouldn't be married. You know, I wouldn't be able to be self-supporting through my own contributions. You know, I, I, it, it could have gone all wrong. It really could have, but, uh, but it was, it was, that was, that was a huge, huge move. A lot of people didn't understand it. You know, because you're, and you don't realize, you know, it's like, oh, I must be the weirdo. Well, the only reason why I'm the weirdo is all the people I know are partiers. <laughs> so, yeah. so then when you stop partying, you actually meet other people who are not. And, uh, but I couldn't do it. Some people can. So I'm just telling you, I mean, I'm not judging anybody. Some people can. I just couldn't. I had reached, I always say that God gave me a bag of drinking tokens and I used them all by, by 28. So I was out of tokens. So. So one of the iconic shows that you were known for is Legends of the Hidden Temple, which is still showing today on, I think, Pluto TV. I think I saw it. Talk about how that opportunity came about. Well, you know, it's, and it's part of this whole journey after, you know, New York and really 28 years old. Um, really, I had... I started working and mostly I did commercials. I really, you know, I thought I wanted to be, a, I wanted to be a film actor and a, um, a, you know, a TV actor, but it just never seemed, I couldn't seem to, to, to get any traction there. But oddly enough, the very first commercial I ever went out on 
I booked it. It was a national commercial, very first audition. So I'm like, oh, this is my path. <laughs> so I decided to move to New York. I mean, from New York to LA to, just to try it and for to see pilot season. I wanted to see if I could get some pilots. And I had a really, got a really good agent and I was going out for a lot of something. I think I even went up for friends at oh. that point. <laughs> there was a lot of that. I was on, I was up for Cheers. I was up for all these, these shows. And, um, but could I couldn't imagine, book. Could you imagine if you were on Friends, how big of an impact that would have made on your life? Exactly. But Chandler got the job, you know, I mean. Uh, we're getting the scoop now on the show. Yeah, see, that was it. That was the part I was going for, right? Wow. Joey, Joey used to go, what, I can't say the character's name. What's his name? Uh, Rob. Matt LeBlanc. Uh, Matt, Matt LeBlanc. Yeah, he would, he was one of those those really hot commercial actors in New York at the time too. I remember you go there and I go, God, why does his hair look so good? I go, you know, I'd be in a his hair looks so good. His jeans are like perfectly ripped. I'm like, I just don't seem like I'm quite hip like him, but you know, that wasn't my career path. But uh, yeah, so I tried for that, but I started booking more and more commercials. And at the same time, when I did, when I had stopped drinking, I actually started writing uh, a movie. And it was sort of semi-autobiographical, and but it was a coming-of-age movie. And I stayed with that, and I had a filmmaker friend who helped me. We would write it together. And so when I came to L.A., I actually um, got a writing fellowship. I won a writing fellowship for Amblin Entertainment through Steven Spielberg. So I was working in the Universal lot. I was booking like six or seven commercials a year, which was enough. And... Um, and then all of a sudden, I get a phone call. <laughs> this is what happens when things get hot, right? All of a sudden, out of the blue, they find me out of the player's directory, which was a book that you used to pay to get into. They, they'd sit and look for pictures, you know, headshots. And that's how they would pick people sometimes. And uh, I got picked out of that. And they had me come in for an audition. And all I had to do was the play-by-play -play for the Temple Run, which I had no idea what a Temple Run was. And But I had done some previous... Uh, uh, <laughs> practice with my brother doing play-by-play uh, -play on sports with uh, touch, you know, football games, you know, five to the 10, the 15, 20, breaks another tackle, the 30, 35, he's going to make it all, he's going all the way, touchdown! So I just used that in my temple run, and they go, wow, he really did. So I probably nobody else could do that. And uh, so they booked me like two weeks later, and I got flown out to Orlando. I mean, your touchdown reaction just now is like literally your reaction every time a kid crossed the finish line. Or, he did it! He oh did it! Oh my God! He did it! Yes. I mean, anytime you're watching, you're like, you're so excited. You're going to space camp. Let's go! Exactly. And I'm telling you, you know, and I and that was not fake stuff. You know, we're pulling for those kids out there too, and I'm I want them to break through. And and they're, you know, it, it's such a challenge show. That show is really life. You know, and. Uh, you know, I'm, we're all pulling for him to get through it. And I remember when they make it, man, my hair would stand up on my arms. You know, and sometimes occasionally, if you knew the backstory on some of these kids, um, you, you'd start crying a little bit too because, you know, they made it through and they're so shocked that they made it through and they can't believe they made it through because it is kind of a miracle. And it all comes kind of out of the blue because you don't think you're going to make it and suddenly you do. And I said, isn't that life? What were your initial thoughts of the concept of the show when you first started? Were you into it or were you kind of like hesitant on how people would react to it? Uh, I thought it was extremely, 
un hard to understand. When they brought me out there, they did not know the show. They had not done a pilot. They were making it up on their way. Now they were fully in production. They were building the sets for the temple games, for the moat, for all that stuff for the temple. They had all these crews going. They brought me out. They hand me a script of legends. Basically, they hand me a script of legends. That's all I got. I'm like, so how do you do the game show with the legend? You know, I'm like, I didn't really understand how this thing was going to do, how this thing was going to play out. And, you know, and we were so late getting it up that there wasn't really any time to understand what is the mode about? And like, what exactly did they do? And, oh, the legend doesn't play into that. Okay. But then it does play into the steps of knowledge. And, that you know, you're just trying to figure it out. And nobody really was so busy. Nobody really had time to explain it to me and I was really a fish out of water I was I was uh way over my it was way above my pay grade <laughs> it was it was terrible and it was they were um I think they were very uh scared when I started doing the show because they realized they found a guy I didn't never hosted a show before I wasn't Mark Summers you know, I was a guy who just done commercials and they brought me in to do the show. And I thought this was probably the hardest show that was ever put on Nickelodeon. And so the one good thing they did was they gave me a bunch of tapes of a previous show they had done with a guy named, um, I forget the name of the, the, who, who it was, but he, he had done a number of their game shows. And he was really good. And they gave me a bunch of tapes and I go, oh, okay, I can, I can see his energy. You know, he was kind of like me a little bit. It was a little different, but it was, he had the energy. It was go, go, moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. There's no looking back. It's moving forward, you know, and I just watched that. And I came out after watching those and I was a little bit better, <laughs> but they were still worried about me. I will say as a viewer, a viewer huh? it was fast. Like you go from one game to the next, to the next, to the next. So it's like, like you said, none of us really know what the mode is. It's just a bunch of kids crossing water and okay, what's next? Like, and then the steps of knowledge, okay, now we're learning more. Were the artifacts fake and like a makeup artifact or were they actual artifacts for that? Like, I don't know, I can't- Well, like the, the, the uh, God, what, was, what would be one of the artifacts? They're all kind of blurred in together. There was um, a necklace. I don't yeah. even, I can't even think of what they are. Whatever, the necklace of Pocahontas or something like yeah. that. Well, they would make it, you know. They would make the necklace of Pocahontas, and then they would put it and hide it in the temple. You know, maybe hanging around the shrine of the silver monkey or something like that. I don't know. I don't think it hung anything around the shrine of the silver monkey. That was its own thing. That was a, that room is just fun to watch those kids try <laughs> and do. My favorite one was the bucket that used to raise. You get in the bucket and it would raise you up into the shrine and then you break oh, Yep. I like that one a lot. Did you have to test out each of the games so you had more knowledge of, or like when you were doing play-by-play, -play, you were able to talk about it better? Yes, I did. I had to go walk through it myself so I could see it. I mean, the kids had to walk through it too. They got a tour of it because they had to show where all the actuators were to open the doors and else they would have never gotten past the ledge, you know, the ledges or whatever. And uh, so they got their own tour of it. But by then it was like, you know, it's 12 hours into the day. <laughs> They're shot. Yeah. And they were like, what? But I I had to learn everything that was going on because they changed the, every every five shows, they changed the rooms around. So I'd have to learn the new room so I, so I could follow them and see what they're going to do. The good news was is that 
at the end of the season, I would go in LA, I would go into the post-production and I was able to re-record some of my uh, temple lines. Okay. Yeah. Cause that would be hard. Cause did you, did you have to walk like where the kid, the ch child was walk through where they are at or did you stay yeah. at the front? Yeah, you start here, you start here. And cause it was, it was like a, you know, it was like that. So I'd walk here and I just kind of arch around to the end and then come back because they hadn't come back. So I, I'd follow them. We all followed them, all the okay. producers, all the producers, but we're all screaming and yelling the whole time. A lot of people have talked about that the temple guards were scary for those kids, like it terrified them in a way. Did you yeah. have to interact with them as much when you were doing like test runs? Yeah, I had to interact with them because they were my producers and we had many, many conversations about problems that were having <laughs> <laughs> off the set with my performance. No, uh, no, they were, some of them were the, most of them were all the guys that were doing the moat crossing, all those safari guys. They all got to be the temple guards that went after the, you know, in the temple run. But occasionally the producers would dress up and they would get to be the producer, they get to be the, the temple guard. They're very frightening. There, it was no faking that. Um, you are, you're in a small space, you got a helmet on, you got a mouthpiece in, you're thinking about where in the hell you are and how you're gonna get over to wherever that is. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, this thing pops out. So that just scares the hell out of you. It's a, that's a haunted house, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it with basically the, is. With only millions of people watching them going through that that temple yeah talk about the challenge of the production like creating an episode what was it like creating one episode or like a whole season how did how did it happen uh well the first season was so the first show it took us about i want to think it took us like 16 17 hours to do one show wow that's all we did was one show and we had a lot of breakdowns. It was like a Disney ride. It would break down, you know. So we'd have to stop. We'd have to reset. We have to put them exactly in that spot, see where they were doing, see where they're going, you know, and then start them again, start the clock again. So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of stuff where a lot of people couldn't get across the moat. So we had to, like, you know, sort of help them because otherwise we're never we're going to spend 30 minutes trying to get across the moat, you know, because sometimes the moat crossings were really difficult. Uh, so it was a lot of challenges that way. Um, the favorite part was my was the question and answer because that was kind of a place where I could kind of rest. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the first season, I believe, the first season I actually do the legend too. I actually talk about the legend, which I'm like so exhausted by the time doing everything. But they finally gave it to Olmec and that was a time for me to kind of rest in these steps of knowledge. Correct. Continue. Step yep. down. One more. <laughs> Almost there. You're one one one, tip, one step away from the Temple Games. Yeah. How did you keep yourself focused during those times? Uh, first season, I don't know if I had focus. It was like a dream. The first season was so surreal. And uh, I was, I, and to be honest with you, I was completely insecure. The first season, I was really, I really was above my pay grade. I was really out of fish out of water. I was very insecure. I really didn't think they were going to have me back the next year. Um, and I didn't really care because I was so exhausted after the first season. And, um, and I realized, oh, I'm not getting enough money for this. And, but uh, I got home and they were talking about whether or not, they didn't know if they were going to bring me back. 
And I seriously said, I don't care. I said, this was really hard and I don't think I'm being set up for success. So I wrote a list of things that I needed and it probably looked like prima donna doing it, but I wrote a list and I said, and I went in for an interview, another scoop here. I went in for an interview to, they were going to talk to me about re-upping and they were like saying, you've got to be better. You know, it was sort of like that kind of a conversation. And I was like, I agree. I think you're absolutely right. I do need to be better. And I said, I have a list of things that I think can make me better. So I wrote down stuff and one of them was, please give me an assistant that stays by my side that may, keeps me informed of everything that's going on in the show because we're doing five shows concurrently. So I need to know how this all works continuity wise so I can wrap and I can ex extemporaneously speak about things that are happening, not just because, you know, I go to the, to the temple games and then I have no clue what they did going, she, they'd come up to me and go, so in the moat, they fell and they didn't, they were like the last person to cross, you know, or something like that. Or in the temple games, they were the last person to do that. So I was able to kind of weave those things in. Plus they would also keep score during the temple games and send me and put up a little flashcard saying that team won or something like that. And they would show the score. So I would, that was a lot of my stopping during the first season. I had to stop. I go, uh, I don't know what the score is. I don't know how this game's ending. I don't know what's happening. So I had somebody helping me with that. That was really, really helpful. Plus we got a really good director. The second season, he was a MTV director. Um, and he ended up going on to do a lot of the, um, like the Emmys and uh, Academy Awards and stuff like that. He's so good. And I talked to him. This was this was one of those things where I was scared to death that season. I, I thought everybody hated me going into that second season. I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm here. <laughs> and I got, I went right to him. I got off the airplane, got to the set. I went right to him. And I said, let me tell you something. Here's what I think you've been probably hearing about me. And I said, this, this, and that. I go, so here's what I think. Blah, 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 blah. And he goes, dude, you and I are going to have a great season. Wow. Yeah. So would you say the big difference, like the director first season was like, he wanted to do it his way? No, the first, the director was the friend of the producers, good guy, but he was a technical director. He was not a, he was not a creative director. Okay. You know? And he was buried, by the way, he was probably like me. Well, he didn't get invited back. Okay. So he did, he did get fired. But he was a good guy, but he was really difficult. So he was probably buried in the technical room and not being able to get out. And he never gave me any direction at all. My guy was just like, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he wanted. He knew his shots. He knew how, he knew the tone. He knew everything. He was like, he was fun. You know, he was really fun. And we had another director, a producer on the set too, who was a goofball. And he made it really fun for me because you got to be, you got to have, it's got to be a goofball environment. Everybody's got to be laughing and having a good time. So David Greenfield was his name. He was great. Definitely with those kind of shows. I mean, you compared to Mark Summers. I mean, do you, we think Double Dare was that strict? Like they let them have fun and enjoy the experience. And I think looking at your the seasons, each season, I think you felt more confident in what you were doing from like your tone and how you were reacting to stuff. What's the biggest thing you got learned about yourself from the first season to the last season? Um, 
<laughs> well, I think that's kind of what we were talking about is, is that, you know, again, I sort of the theme of, you know, kind of in the fourth quarter, I'm always kind of down. I, you know, I, I'm always, it seemed, my brother, he said this to me one time, he says, you know, he goes, when you do something, he goes, you really struggle. And he goes, and you really have a hard time doing it. But once you get it, he goes, man, you never forget it. And you're, you're like, it's locked in, but it's really trouble getting there. And that, that's for me. And I think just because I'm, I get insecure, you know, I, I want to I think about the audience too much. And I, you know, I get worried about that. I worry about my audience and it's some, it's usually, I have to get kicked in the head usually. And uh, it would happen in football too. I'd be in a football game and I'd be kind of, kind of what, I'd be kind of not really fully involved and somebody would hit me really hard and all of a sudden I got pissed. Now I'm pissed and now I'm out of my mind. So I think that's what happens a lot. Did you have a good relationship with, I think it was D. Bradley Baker, Olmec. Yeah, he's a great guy. He he was great. He was one again, another funny ass guy <laughs> on set. Once we got to know each other, I think after the first season, I mean, he was so funny. He'd do little voiceover stuff or voice characters. He played, he could do a dinosaur, like physically do the dinosaur and make the noise really well. And I used to bring him out to the audience because make it the audience see the dinosaur. So I'd go out there and mess around with him, do that. And I was always encouraging him to do it. And I am single-handedly responsible for him coming to LA and starting that magnificent voiceover career of his because I told him, you, my friend, have to get out of Orlando. And you're going to have to come to LA and do that. So he did. He came out. He took me up on it, came to my house. He stayed in my house for a few weeks and got his feet underneath him and um, got his bearings and started working. Never stopped working. Do you have a favorite moment from doing that show? Or a favorite memory? Favorite memory of that show. It's probably, my favorite memory is probably, it's, it's, it relates back to the bartending thing. Um, when I was almost fired as a bartender, because I was terrible, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do all this stuff. I couldn't micro, I couldn't multitask. And I'm like having a horrible time. And then suddenly I had a breakthrough and suddenly I started, everything started clicking. And I, and one night I was like sitting at the bar going, man, I really know what I'm doing, you know? And that's how it felt on that set. It was like, well, I, you know, from that moment, that first season where I was just swimming underwater and walk or walking through mud or whatever the case may be to the second season of just going, wow, I really know what I'm doing and I'm having fun. And I can actually say extra things and do extra, you know, I can start to improvise a little bit. Again, too, too much of that show because it drives forward. But I could just, I was just having a great time. But I just remember that going, now I'm having a great time. It kind of goes back to what we talked about with being passionate about what you're doing. Kind of the first season, you're like, uh, I'm not liking this. But then right when you got to the second, I think third, you kind of were like, I like what I'm doing. And you got to enjoy it. It's not stressful. Yeah. I mean, it probably was stressful with the long hours, but you were enjoying the opportunity that you had. Yeah. I mean, you know, we get fired. Everybody's going to get fired from a job and get let go. It just happens, you know, whatever. I mean, I got my very first job I ever had coming out of college. When I went to LA and they said the door was closed for me, I worked at a, at a casting director's office. I thought, hey, great, I'll work at a casting director because that'll give me the back door to be an actor, you know, that kind of stuff. 
and it wasn't. It was a freaking hard job to be a casting assistant, and it was a lot of hours, and it was really hard, and I didn't know how to be a secretary very well, and I got fired. <laughs> and it was awful, and I was, I had never been fired for in my life, and I thought, you're fired. It was amazing. She fired me, and she had paid the week. She paid on Monday for the whole week. So I'd already been paid for the whole week. Well, I'm a good, honest guy. And so she fired me on Monday. And so I said, uh, what do I, you've already paid me. Like, like, what do you want me to do? Do I work? And then she, she made the big mistake. She goes, well, you can do whatever you want. I go, oh, okay, well, I'll work the rest of the week. And she probably wanted me to get her my stuff and leave <laughs> at that moment. And actually it was so funny because again, that week was probably the best week I ever had in that office because I was relaxed because I already got fired. Mm-hmm. It was, I there's no ways to go, but you know, up. <laughs> you could have done anything that week. I, I did. And everybody, and she stayed in her room the whole time. She wouldn't come out. She felt so bad. And all the other casting associates, the assistant or the other casting directors, they were loving it. She wasn't a very nice person, but they were loving it. And they're going, you are killing her right now. <laughs> killing her. The comedian side coming out. <laughs> so the show kind of relaunched with a movie, and then there's possible talks of remakes. Do you have? Did you have any involvements with those, or you're kind of just if they ask me, they ask me. On the well, the remake we did the movie, which was came out of out of the blue. I'm like, I thought somebody was having a joke with me. Like, <laughs> oh, you're gonna make a movie of the game show? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Why don't you send me a script? Let me take a look. And they send me a script. I go, oh, it is a movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was like, and uh, it looked like it was it was being done by Nickelodeon. I was like, wow, they're really doing this. And I had a blast doing it. I didn't have a lot of scenes in it, but they had me there for all of the promotion stuff. So I got to go and do the Comic-Cons and the, in New York and in San Diego. And I got to go up to Vancouver and do a lot of press junket stuff. I had a blast doing that. I got to hang out with the PR person, which was like being a PR person. I finally got mm-hmm. to like use my PR skills sure and that was cool. And um, I had a great time and uh, uh, and the movie got mismarketed a little bit and mis sort of misrepped I think. And they 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 were they made it for little kids who had no idea what Legends of the Hidden Temple was. And so but I was promoting to all these people like your age but nobody was watching the childish version of Legends of the Hidden Temple. So yeah. I don't mean this in a bad way. I don't mean this to be, you know, in degrading this thing, but they, they did a nice job with the movie, but they marketed, they made it for kids. And the kids didn't really know, they had no reference, frame of reference for the show. I think a lot of people that I ask that's my age, they've never heard of the show before. Like I was, I found it on TV, like, I think early 2000s, it was on Nick Gas or something. Yeah. And so they showed the repeat and I got into it. So I was just like following, but it, it was a hit or miss for my generation. But anytime I talk to like coworkers that were older, they're like, oh yeah, I know that show. Cause it was probably when they were children. Right. So, and I think it kind of goes with that where it, I mean, I didn't, I heard that there was a movie. I just didn't know when it was released or anything. Right. So, now so talk- now Quibi, now Quibi's come out with this new thing, and I don't know what's going to happen with Quibi. It seems, I don't know if that's going away or what's happening with that. It seems it kind of launched kind of the wrong time and yeah. the whole thing. So I'm not sure what's happening, but 
it looks like they were going for legends with older kids on it. Of course, nobody contacted me. So I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be in this, which I don't think is correct if I'm looking with my producer hat on because I'm going, wait, I'm the guy who connects to that generation. You yeah. go to my fraternity now, I, I'm a hit with all the kids, <laughs> 25, or at least of that age group. Everybody knows who I am. But I said, um, uh, I, you know, they, they haven't contacted me. But I don't know. Maybe the show's not going to go. I don't know. Hard to say. But. So after the show out, they're putting it on Netflix. They should just do a new version of Legends of the Hidden Temple and put it on Netflix. Yeah. Or Hulu I mean, or something. Something where it's like they can reach a bunch of people. And Netflix and Hulu seems like a lot of the movies nowadays that were going to be in theaters are now going to netflix or hulu because everyone has a streaming service now yeah the world has changed right yeah in that, in that sense the entertainment business i mean are anybody going back to the movie theaters i haven't been to a movie theater in probably like five years yeah even before that because you know look look back when i was growing up it was cheap to go to movies you know i could go on a date and i could have I could go dinner, which was cheap. I could go, I had a car with some gas. And I'd go to a movie, and I'd be out for a very low amount of money. I mean, geez, you go to a movie, you're, out, you're in for a hundred bucks. Yeah. You know, by the end of the night. It's too like, big of a budget right there. You better really like that person, or they better <laughs> like you a lot. You see, I'm a person, that I don't go to the movies on a date. It's like, I want to talk to the person. I don't, just don't want to sit there for an hour and 30 minutes and not talk. No, I know, there is that. There is that, but you know, not everybody's gregarious. You yeah. Know? So after that show, were you getting a lot more auditions or um, jobs, or was it kind of like slowing down because you went in a different direction? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, nobody really knew me. I was basically, after that show, I went back to my normal life, you know, and going back to commercials. Nobody knew who I was. It wasn't really until later, till the directors got older. Or, or younger, they got into the scene, people started getting the scene, they started to know who I was. And I'm not sure, you know, sometimes, I mean, I, I know I was brought on in for a lot of auditions just so they could say hello, mm -hmm. you know, which was, which was fine, but it's also like, I just spent two and a half hours preparing to come down for this. And I have a feeling it was just to sign an autograph. That's not fun. Because it wastes your time. Because you're like, this is my career. I want to get an offer possibly out of this exactly but you know it just happens so how did but, you get involved in real estate uh, necessity is the mother of invention so i was it was 2000 i had just been married uh the entertainment business uh the commercial business went on strike and Coincidentally, every commercial that I had stopped running just before that strike. Oh, no. So suddenly I finished, like my commercials are gone. We went on strike. I'm like, oh, I have no money. I have no money coming in. So I thought, I got to do something. So I went, reached out. This is, I like this. It's all part of the theme here. So I took my brother-in-law and my best friend out to lunch separately. And I said, here's where I'm at. What do you think? What would you do? What do you like to do? You know, I was like, oh, and they started talking to me and they, and both of them separately sort of mentioned real estate. And I had sort of liked real estate and I had bought a couple of things. And, uh, and I said, yeah, maybe I'll do that. And they decided, they said, hey, if you find anything that's interesting to go in on, 
we'll go in on with you. So I immediately got in my car and drove around in LA and I found an apartment building and I, it was a sign laying in the dirt and I pulled it up, got the phone number and called it and it took me like six months to, to book the deal. And I was almost ready to leave. I was going to leave LA too. I decided to move to Vermont. I was going to, I said, well, I can do anything. I have no career. I have no money coming in. I can start completely fresh. So I went to Vermont during the escrow to see if I wanted to live in Vermont or New Hampshire. And I came back and I go, there's no work in Vermont and New Hampshire. So I came back and closed the deal and uh, I rehabbed and, and uh, remodeled this uh, six unit apartment building. And that's what started me. And then I started to pick, to do a triplex. And then I bought a beach or bought a mountain cabin. And I started just picking things. And then eventually I land, oh, I did a movie. I don't know if you saw that in any of the thing. I did a movie called Distortion. And it was my big movie. I wrote it and I directed it and I acted in it. Probably shouldn't have done all three, but <laughs> I, I did it and we ended up selling it. And we did fairly well. I mean, we didn't do trouble. We got some money back on it, but I did it. But one of the guys I, I cast in the movie played a cop and he was a house flipper. And uh, he'd known that I was doing a little work, had done some work previous to that because I had made, some, that's how I made my money to make the movie. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, do you want to build a house with me? And I go, yeah, I don't know how to build a house. So right after that, I built a house with him for a year. And that's how I learned how to build houses. And that's what started me on my career. I mean, real estate or house flipping is kind of like a thing now. Like a lot of people are getting into because the investment is worth it at the end. I, yeah yeah it's but it's risky you know yeah. it's risky. And, you know don't let don't let anybody tell you that you can't lose any money in real estate yeah. before i get out there and go start buying a house i'm like kirk fogg told me to <laughs> yeah no no you, you, you gotta be careful you gotta, so, it's like a fire it's four act play you gotta buy it right you yep. gotta design it right you gotta build it right and you gotta sell it right if one of those doesn't work you guys knowing me it probably it would take me a while to get used to it. I, my dad oh. used to do like granites or like kitchens and bathrooms. My family. Oh, he did? He was a remodeler? Yeah, and he did all that. And I'm like, I have no idea what any of the stuff is. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I don't either. So how did you learn about, before you met the guy that was a house flipper, did you kind of do research and learn how to do it? Or no, well, I had done it. I had done the, well, I had because I had done, I had remodeled the apartments. And then I bought a triplex and I remodeled the triplex. So, and then I bought a little mountain cabin. I remodeled that. So yeah, I had some people, I kind of knew how to do it. So, but I didn't know how to build, build, mm -hmm. you know, like I didn't know how to, from the, from the ground up, which is a whole different deal. So once I did that, then I was able to go out on my own. So what does the future look like for you professionally and personally? <sighs> I don't know. And don't really know. It's such, uh, we're, you know, we're here in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You have to mention the pandemic. Yeah, we can't say the other word. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. I don't really know. Maybe this is just a new time to sort of break through again. I, you know, I would like to say that I'm broken through. This is the most amazing time. I have really come to many, many decisions about my life, but I haven't. And, you know, um, 
I'm just kind of taking it a day at a time and I'm trying to take care of, you know, what's in front of me. I mean, that's all I can do. And I'm kind of in between inspiration, you know, I'm, uh, and, it, and it's okay. Some days it's not okay, but it is okay. And, um, but I just keep, uh, I try to keep my brain right. And I try not to freak out too much. And I try not to look at the news too much. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, right now I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually, I have a house here in LA. It's a pretty big house. And uh, so I am remodeling that. I can't help myself. So I've, <laughs> I've got a whole crew outside of my exterior. We're all redoing. I bought this house. It's a great house. And um, it was actually great because I'm a TV junkie. It was Jethro Bodine, the guy from Beverly Hillbillies. It was his old house back in the 50s. And it's up in, it's up in the hills. Max Bear Jr. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a nice big house up here, but it's old. And uh, so I've started to work on it since, cause I really couldn't, I really haven't, I'm in between projects. So I decided to do that. So we'll see. I think this pandemic has been, it's a great time to kind of do like a self-reflection and kind of think what, what, what goals do you have in life? I experienced the furlough in my position. So I was like, I don't know what to do for the next few months. And this podcast has always been a, a goal. And I'm like, this is the perfect opportunity to do it. I have the time. I have the resources and I had to learn on the fly. I didn't know anyone that, but I was always listening to podcasts and it's been the best experience ever. Even my coworkers, they listen to every episode and they're still oh, good. So yeah. like, I'm kind of like, oh, are they going to like that I'm doing this? But when they, they see the passion that I have and reaching out to all these people, it's a great way to connect and be able to learn more. And I truly have enjoyed learning from you. Like I, I've been getting the scoop. I'm getting new stuff that maybe people haven't heard about you. Yeah, maybe, you know, yeah. And then, believe me, I've been, been interviewed a lot. So I've given you a little bit of tidbit, but yeah, I, I like that. It's like, you know, I, I, I've been thinking, so I've reflected in this pandemic, I've reflected and now I'm ready. And then I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm not ready yet. Yeah. I have to keep going back down. So. It's always like each interview I do, I've learned something about myself and what I can use in my daily life or something that I can think, okay, I can do it differently because we're all not 100% perfect. We all can learn from each other one way or another. And it's kind of like, I enjoy that. So, Well, I this is a great, this is, I like this, you know, when I asked you, I said, so what is it we're going, what, what path are we going to go down? So I really did enjoy the idea that we were going to go down this path about breakthrough, because really the breakthrough thing has been the theme of my whole life. It really has. And, um, and, and it keeps me, you know, excited. And even though I'm not, I have no clues to where I'm heading right now. I'm a little bit lost. I'm in the middle of the temple and I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know where the next room is, but I'm just going to keep moving forward. And, you know, something that I've learned, and this has been the greatest thing is progress, not perfection. Mm-hmm. Progress, not perfection. Take it to the temple, Ryan. You're basically in the pit of despair. You don't know if you want to go down to that the bottom room, <laughs> the middle room, or the up room, and you just are hitting that button. See, like, uh, does that door open? Nope. Now you got to try a different route. Yeah, I just want to grab. All I really want to do is grab the the object 
and, and get out within three minutes. I'm trying desperately to find that object so I can get the hell out of that temple. This might be a crazy question with the temple. Has there ever been a kid where they're like in a room, they just want to jump out of it and just walk to the next one and go around instead of going actually through the doors? That would be, that's like the Kobayashi Maru test. Like <laughs> Captain Kirk, you know, the only one who, who went around the Kobayashi Maru test. That would have been genius. No, but there has been kids that have gotten scared out of the temple. I remember, I think I've there's seen an episode where I think it's like the final child going in and they just jump out. I'm like, that would probably be me. <laughs> yeah, they broke the fourth wall. Oh, now, now every TV show does that. Yeah. So the final couple questions. In the yeah. industry that you're in, either real estate or the entertainment industry, what tips or advice would you give someone to pursue that and accomplish their goals in that industry? Um, the entertainment business, what a tough business that one is. Um, you know, I don't know, you know, look, I, when I started it, I wanted to be a movie star. Mm -hmm. I, and I wanted to make lots of money. I wanted to be a movie star and I wanted to have a Jaguar and I wanted to have a house, you know, a beautiful, big, beautiful house. But, you know, once you get into the business, you have to figure out what the business is. The money of the business has changed. Now, look, I've never been a huge money. I've not made huge money in this business. I'm just a journeyman actor, really. But so you're really probably not getting in for the money, even though I didn't think that when I got in. So if I hadn't thought, if I thought that would get going in, I might not have gone into the business. So you have to be sort of insane to make a decision to go in the acting business <laughs> and think, oh, I'm going to be the one. I'm going to make the money. I'm, I'm, I'm the special guy. But then you realize when you're in the, when you come to LA or New York, you realize that everybody who's in that city trying to do it are all the best people from their little town. The ones that said, dude, you would be so good in commercials. You'd be so good on TV show. Really, you think so? Yes, you <laughs> should go to New York, you know? And so I was, I was with all these people and, and that's what you're competing with all the time. And there's always somebody who's better than you, always. And you'll see that in sports too. There's always somebody better, every time. Yep. But it doesn't matter. You don't need to be the best to succeed. It's kind of random. Um, but the, the deal is, is just to try to be smart, uh, try to figure out how you fit into the business. Try not to uh, sabotage yourself and do things. Maybe you're doing the business for a different reason. Maybe you're doing it because you're trying to figure out who you are and, mm -hmm. and you need to figure that out and then get out of the business. Or if you really want to do the business, you just have to figure out how to make money in the business. And I don't really know how to make money in this business. The business model is changing. You know, it's, it changes a lot. And, um, um, you know, probably you got to be the top. You got to be one of the best, you know, if you want to do it. And, and uh, if you're not, you're going to make a little bit of money, maybe. And, um, but I don't know. It's all right. It's, that's a tough question. The final and, question. And even if you make money early, you may not have that money later. That is true. Yeah. And, and, just, and just think if you were successful, this is difficult. I can imagine people who were very successful in series and then it's over and then they can't work anymore, but now they're only known as blah, blah, blah. And they don't have some big residual 
thing like a Seinfeld, you know, that's floating their boat the whole time. So then they got to figure out how to, can they go back to the restaurant business? They can't, they can't. Yeah. Everybody knows, what are you doing, Karen? You know, so what a tough gig that is. Me, myself, I can always just sort of fade into the, and do whatever I want because nobody really puts two and two. So I've been sort of living in anonymity in some ways. I think some people, when I was, about the time I was graduating, a lot of people were like, oh, I'm going to make six figures. I'm going to get this awesome job and everything. And it's like, I don't need that six figures right away. I want to earn it. I want to work up to it. Like, I want to challenge myself to get to that goal eventually. And I know that a lot of, some people that I know, money is not a strong suit for them. They like to spend it. They don't know how to save. And I was like the opposite. I'm like, I want to save as much as I can because you never know what's going to happen. And kind of helps me because I'm always like, okay, I can only spend this much this week. What's my monthly spend expenses? I probably overdo it, but it helps. No, I'm telling you that is, ladies and gentlemen, listen to this man over there. <laughs> Whatever way it shows. Listen to this man because he's, he's absolutely correct. They don't teach money in school. They don't teach nope. it in college. They don't teach it anywhere. And I'm right now spending time with my son who just graduated from high school and we're reading a book about money. It's called Money Matters. And, and we're reading this book and we're learning about money because I said, look, you don't want to have to learn this after college. We want to start learning about money now yep. and about not debting. You know, not getting yourself into debt, in which all these students do, and all these people going on college get into debt, and they get credit cards and all that kind of stuff. You got to know how to make a spending plan. You know what? You know you have to know how to keep generating revenue. I always tell people, what do I need to do? Just keep generating revenue. Mm -hmm. Keep generating revenue and try not try to make more money than you spend. They need to teach that in college. I remember. In high school. High school, I took a class called personal finance. So they talked about, okay, what's a check? What's a credit card? What's a debit yeah. card? But then after that, it's like, okay, do I remember everything that I just learned like five years ago? But they need to, they need to do more like life skills stuff in yeah. college in a way. Yeah. Um, that's, I think, but, or you're going to have to learn it the hard way. I mean, well, I, you're going to have to be in that horrible 22 to 26 range. You know, where you're like, oh my God, I'm shot. I have so much money in debt. I can't, uh, I can't I, I'm moving into another new apartment. I'm, you know, it's like on and on and on. Yeah. See, for me, I was like, I told my parents, I'm like, I think I'm ready to be on my own. And I've been living in my, by myself in my own house for two years now. And my mom's like, hey, you're fine. Like I learned, like I was the one cooking at home. I was doing laundry and all that. So I, I was learning those life skills right away because I knew I can't. You're self-supporting through your own contributions. Yes. yes. So the final question I have for you, from your journey, what tips or advice would you give to rise to the challenge, to overcome obstacles and accomplish your goals? Hmm. Um, try to be honest with yourself. Try to, you know, if something's, if something's holding you back, Try to get in touch with it. Try to slow down. Try to get yourself to stop and think and see what it is that you need to do. And if you don't know, ask a few people and say, how do you think I'm doing? What do you think? You know, because, you know, we get off in these roles, man, and we never stop. 
And we just think, oh, no, no I just got to keep going, I got to keep going. But it's okay. Just It's okay to stop and get some feedback and find out what it is you need to work on. Because it could be, you know, it could be some huge defect that you need to deal with. Like for me, mine was, mine was my drinking, you know, at 28. That's where I had to come and have a come to Jesus moment and sit there and go, what am I committed to? You know, and then how do I do it? Thank you. From your experience, I've gone through the same thing with, I'm a type one diabetic and for going on 15 years now. And I was one of those things where I knew what I was doing. Oh, I knew I was right. But over time, it caught up to me. And it's kind of scared some of my coworkers where they've had to come to my house because they thought, oh, he's not making a sentence on the phone. And I reached out to someone, I actually did an interview with someone and him and I just continue to talk and communicate. And it's kind of like, I felt better about myself reflecting and talking to someone. And it gave me more confidence to be upfront, be honest with myself and yeah. know that there's always people out there that will help you. Even yeah. like your true friends, your true friends are going to be there to support you no matter what. And you can't be afraid to ask. Yeah. But you got to find the friends that are willing to tell you the truth. Yes. Because yeah. some are just going to sign, co-sign your BS. <laughs> no, you're great. Yeah. You're perfect. Keep going. Oh, no. Why? You're, you're, well, you're just being hard on yourself. Well, Kirk, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and telling your rise to the challenge. I have truly, it's been an honor to learn more about your story. And I'm excited for everyone to hear more about it. Thank you, and good luck to you, and I, I, I wish you the best, and I think that uh, you're right on the right path, too. You are heading for the gates. Well, I want that trip to space camp. Let's go. <laughs> Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember, you can follow and subscribe on all your favorite major podcast platforms, and also make sure you follow and subscribe on our YouTube channel at the Rise to the Challenge Podcast YouTube channel. How are you going to rise to the challenge this week? You decide.